Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio podcast, session number nine. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast, session number nine, brought to you by our friends over at Gear Sluts. Man, I'm really, really excited about today's show. I'm excited because, number one, this guy, I, I call him a friend. And damn it, he's just such a nice person. So it's a treat to have Andrew Sheps on today. Don't know Andrew Sheps, maybe you do. I'm looking at his management uh, page, his discography, and there's some records on here that I had no idea he was part of that I truly enjoy, and some records on here that I'm not familiar with, but I've heard them in passing. Here's a few of them. Black Sabbath 13, the new Black Sabbath record. The new and very popular Hoosier record. I don't know if you've checked that out, but Adele 21, Lana Del Rey, Beyonce, uh, and of course, to accompany Beyonce, Jay-Z. He's also worked with Metallica, Gogo Bordello, Justin Timberlake, Ziggy Marley, Kid Rock, Neil Diamond, The Hives, Grace Potter and the Nocturnals, Audio Slave, he recorded that. He's worked with Weezer, Mars Volta, Linkin Park. Anyways, here we are today, session number nine. Hey, thanks a lot. A lot of you are sending me messages and emails. Here's one I want to address. Bill Simpkins. Bill, thanks for emailing me. That's uh, Bill emailed me, giving me some, some nice props. I appreciate that. But he had a really good idea. Uh, I don't know if any of you are fans of Martin Birch, but Martin Birch did like Deep Purple, Iron Maiden, stuff like that. And if you are remotely a fan of any of that, Martin Birch is the guy. Don't know how to find him. Don't know where to reach him. Martin, if you hear this, get in touch. I would love to have you on the show. I really admire your work. So uh, that's a great idea, Bill. Thanks for doing that. Uh, Thanks for sending that. And Bill's on Facebook. He's got a thing called Audio Engineering Diaries. It's his personal blog. Jeez, he's got he's got over 11,000 likes. Wow. Okay. So, uh, check out that audio engineering diaries, uh, from Bill Simpkins out on Facebook. All right. So let's just jump right into it with Andrew and, uh, let's see how this call goes. Here we go. Andrew Sheps. Hello. Hey, Matt. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I cannot complain. You went to Iceland. I did. Yes. And that same journey, did you also do a, a mix with the masters, a new one? Yep. Yeah, it was all part of our European jaunt for the year. Yeah, it was great. Did you have repeat people from uh, Mix with the Masters? No, I don't think. I mean, there are lots of people who go to more than one seminar, but I don't know that anyone would bother going to see the same person twice. I still have a goal of getting out to go see Chad Blake when I can afford to do so. Yeah, look, me too. Believe me. I'm under the impression it's quite expensive once you're accepted. I think it's somewhere like 3500 or something like that. I mean, it's a lot of money, but you do stay there and they feed you and they give you drinks and like you, it shouldn't really cost you a penny once you're there. 
but you do have to get yourself there as well. So, yeah, it, it ain't cheap, but I think it's pretty good value. But yeah, I was going to say, I think that's quite an experience to have. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I mean, I've gotten to hang out with Chad a few times just because I know him and I, man, I still would absolutely do his seminar. I'm looking at your, at your page at uh, McDonough Management. There's some stuff on here that I had no idea that you did. Uh-oh. Stuff that I'm a fan of, uh, the Grace Potter record. I had oh, no right. idea you did that. Yeah, supposedly there's a credit on there, but you never know. Um, yeah, that, and that was a totally random, just got a call, mixed it, never heard back. You know, just like, yeah, cool, done. So Done, paid, end of story. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that you uh, did some recording on the Audio Slave record. Yeah, I worked on that for a long time, which is actually great. There's some stuff on here that I was I was blown away by. Now I'm known for a while, of course, you know, since I first met you that you you mix 99 problems, which to this day I just I think very highly of that mix. It's it's so powerful. Thanks, man. You've been doing this for how many years? Well, I mean, I got out of college in 88 and started working for Synclavier. So, I've been like trying to make records full-time since 91 and did a little bit of touring early on because that's the work I got. Um, so yes, yeah, basically since 91, I guess. Did you go to University of Miami? Yeah. And then you uh, worked for Sinclavier and you were like the in the, the field rep that would go and make sure that the thing worked. Yeah. The field service tech. Field I went service tech. When it was broken. Huh. When I got a phone call. You're the guy that gets all the wrath and all the glory at the same time. Yeah, exactly. You know, every time you left, they'd say, oh, it was great to see you. I hope you never see you again. At that point, you got this early exposure to to record making on probably a higher level because those who could afford a Synclavier were probably not making small-time records. No, no, exactly. I mean, you know, those things were kind of a hundred grand to get in the door and if you really wanted to you could probably by the end when they had disc recording you could probably spend half a million if you really wanted to wow that's a chunk of dough yeah chunk of dough i'm gonna try to pinpoint this as best i can i'm trying to find the point at the moment at which you started to make what i would classify as big boy records <laughs> big boy, big girl records. In my career, as far as I was thinking about it, it was more sort of when I moved back into the engineering chair, which is where I'd always thought I was going to be. But I was pretty early on working on bigger projects because of things like the Synclavier. And then from there, just being able to do a lot of um, keyboard programming and stuff like that. And then I was one of the very early Pro Tools guys. I would show up with my own rack of four DA88s, do transfers, bring them back to my place, transfer it into Pro Tools, do a bunch of stuff, bring it back on DA88s, and transfer it back in sync onto your two-inch analog. And so I wasn't necessarily always engineering and or mixing or producing, but I was in on bigger sessions kind of from the very beginning, um, just because of me having sort of weird, specific technical things that I was good at. You know, for a long time, you would have an engineer and you would have an editor. And now very few projects can afford to have two people do that. So I think what happened was there were a lot of engineers who had a really hard time learning Pro Tools, whereas I was hot shit on Pro Tools and already could engineer, though no one was bothering to hire me for that. So... Um, I was just lucky, you know, uh, um, 
I found ways to get myself in the room because of the more esoteric or technical side of things. But I always thought I was an engineer. You know, it never occurred to me that I wasn't. And then I would look back on things like, oh, right, yeah, I'm not an engineer yet or something like that. So that transition was pretty natural. It was as the industry shifted, I was already right there. So were you a staff engineer at a studio or a freelancer? No, it was always freelance, which I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't know that that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, I know um, like Joe Barisi and some other friends of mine worked at Sound City and got to work on a bunch of really cool records and really learn a lot from other engineers and producers. And um, and I never had that, you know, during that time. And that's what I thought I was going to do when I got out of school. But there was a job opening at New England Digital working on Synclaviers and I just took the gig. You know, it was money. It seemed interesting. Um, you know, I've always been a bit of a geek. I'm fascinated by the technology. So... That's just where I went instead of working at a studio. And then from there, um, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to start back over again as a runner, but I wasn't really qualified to be an assistant. And I could also get in on sessions a little bit above the sort of assistant level. I mean, you know, it's a parallel thing. It's not necessarily one is above another, but if I could get in there as an editor or a programmer or something like that and then end up doing some engineering along the way, it didn't make sense for me to take a gig as an assistant. So I just made sure that I learned as much as I could from every session I worked on as if I were the assistant, but I was actually getting paid to do some editing. And I would hang around, too. I mean, when I would have to take the Pro Tools stuff away to work on it, I would stick around as long as I could. Like I was doing some editing on a Stones record that um, Don Was was producing. I didn't need to be there, but the band started showing up and Ed Cherney showed up and they were going to start tracking. And I just made myself very, very small and sat in the front of the control room for like three hours. And then like, okay, I guess I better go get to work. Um, So I got to be in a lot of situations. I didn't necessarily have a business being there, but that worked out. Well, let's talk about something you said there. You became very small. That speaks to the, um, the control room or the studio etiquette. I talked to Craig Schumacher the other day and he was just railing on, on an individual he encountered and said, if this is the state of the, the student body coming out of these schools, we're in big trouble. So talk to me about what you find important in studio etiquette and, in terms of the different people on the totem pole, if you will. There's a lot to say about that. The first thing is, I did a little interview for Sound on Sound, and I sort of crystallized it into this, just don't be a dick. <laughs> that's, that's the main piece of advice for anybody working in any field. But basically, just don't be a dick. But in terms of the hierarchy and things, I think one thing, and I, I touched on it in this other interview, but it's kind of huge. What happens is you're young and you're really technically savvy and you know how to run the gear. And that could be, you know how to run the tape machine, you know how to use the console, you know how to use Pro Tools, you know how to program Ableton. doesn't matter what it is. And you're working for an engineer who is older and more of a Luddite and maybe doesn't know how to do these things. And you immediately assume that you could do that guy's job. And it makes you arrogant and it makes you speak when maybe you shouldn't. Uh, and you've got to realize that the the technical skills are something that should be a given. Like, you better be awesome on all that equipment. And the reason that other guy is in the room is because he's so good, he doesn't need to be awesome on all that equipment. 
And it's it's understanding that. And it's tough. I mean, it's just part of being young, too. I mean, I remember coming home from college and thinking I knew everything. And I remember conversations with my parents. I'm still embarrassed about what a dick I was. You know? <laughs> so we all go through it. But it's very, very important to learn how to read a room, to learn how to read how people are going to react to things. But to know your place and to know who you should say stuff to. I think there there are many fewer kind of formal sessions in large studios with a producer, an engineer, and an assistant. But whenever you're in a situation like that, if you're the assistant and you think you've got an amazing idea, you don't tell the band. You tell the engineer, and if the engineer thinks it's awesome, he will tell the producer because he shouldn't tell the band. And if the engineer takes credit for it, well, then he's being kind of a dick, but that's the role he's in. And you've got to just learn to live within that system because otherwise you're just going to get fired. I mean, you can't you can't take over a session, you know, if unless you're asked to or unless there's a real reason you have to. So there there is a chain of command, really. Yeah, absolutely. And there has to be. There has to be. Because, look, it's it's not an exact science. There's no right answer. You know, if you notice something that's wrong, then it's your duty to point it out. But you have to point it out to whoever is next up the chain, because otherwise it can be seen as showing them up. And it's such a weird psychological interpersonal experience in a studio that that's just the quickest way to get yourself out the door. And there's no need for it. Switching gears a little bit. At what point did you start to do work with Rick Rubin? I don't remember what year it was, and actually, since we're in the confines of my studio, I could look it up. The first record I worked on for him was um, Saul Williams' Amethyst Rockstar. Um, but it was that, and then at the same time, there was a remix album of Wu-Tang songs that he was working on called Loud Rocks, and there were two remixes he was producing. One, uh, Rage Against the Machine did a remix, basically Tom Morello did that remix. I don't remember if the, any of the rest of the band played on it. It may have just been Tom, and then Chad Smith played drums on that. Um, and then I recorded some vocals for one that System of a Down did. Let me see what year that was. It's in the Wayback Machine, as it turns out. Of course it is. It's on your permanent record. It is on my permanent record. It's somewhere around 2000, I would say, but I'm not finding it. Oh, you know why? Because I didn't get a credit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would say around 2000. Probably. Somewhere. Okay. And, and was that a specific uh, uh, conversation? Did he approach you and say, hey, I really like what you do or? No, no, no. I mean, I was I was certainly beneath his, his notice in that way. Um, I was brought in to do editing and keyboard stuff like I got the reason I got the call to work on the Saul Williams project is they had been doing a lot of writing and tracking using MPC 60 and a lot of stuff of that era. And they were just printing stereo dumps of whatever was going on to do overdubs. And then they were mixing and wanted to, they wanted to split stuff out. And all of a sudden stuff wasn't syncing up anymore. And so they said, well, okay, who can make this work? And someone else who was working for him said, Andrew can do that. He's a total geek. He'll make that work. So that's, that's why I got in there. And I'd been called a couple of times before that to do some editing and just schedule wise, it didn't work out. Um, but you know, once you get in the room, if you are good and can do stuff, like I was there to do basically programming to make an MPC 60 lock up to an analog tape machine. And then I ended up tracking Chad Smith playing drums on something the next day. So once you're there, you step up and kind of do whatever comes up and then that's how you stay there. It's good to be a problem solver, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah, because, man, the last thing you need is more problems. So <laughs> don't create problems, and if you can solve them, that's awesome, especially if you can do it in a way that's transparent and just lets people work. And it gives people a chance to to become familiar with you, become comfortable with you, to invite you in, back into the room, I would assume. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me a bit about your family. I know you you have two kids, right? Yep. And yep. They're, they're older now. They're older now, yeah. They're 23 and 19. Talk to me about those early years, what you went through as far as family sacrifice. Did you miss birthdays? Did you miss Halloweens? Talk to me about what that was like for you at, at, at that point. You're, tr- you're obviously an up-and-coming guy, and you're trying to become you know, a, more of a household name, but you also have the responsibility of your kids. Our son was born when I was really young. So, I mean, it was right at the beginning. I hadn't really established myself at all. So it was tough, you know, and, and the toughest thing was that I got some touring work because of the Synclavier. So I was on tour with Michael Jackson and then with Stevie Wonder. And those are long tours that go out for a while. And this is pre-internet. You know, there's no Skyping, there's no cell phones, there's no email. So I would have to wait for a production phone to be set up in the production office to call my wife. So that was really tough. Um, and it coincided with our son being re- pretty young. And the good thing is that made when I was in town and working crazy hours, that made that look like nothing. Um, and the other thing is that my wife completely understands what I do, you know, so it's like, I know a lot of uh, musicians whose girlfriends or wives, like, don't really buy into the fact that this is what they do, because they're not really successful at it yet. And it's soul destroying in a way, because you know that it's your passion, and it's your life, and you really can't do anything else. And if you don't have somebody who understands that, it they just think you're screwing around. You know, and that you're out late because you're wasting time. And, you know, there are very few times where I would stay at a studio just to hang out. I would go home. I mean, I like to go home. But there are times when it's important to go have a beer with these people. And you got to make sure you've got somebody who gets it. So fortunately, after the first few years, I managed to be in town most of the time. Um, And there was also this thing of telling my wife, like, look, when the kids are out of the house, you're coming with me. And I think, you know, for 20 years, she didn't really believe that was going to happen. But then as soon as our daughter went off to college, that was it. She's been on, I mean, you met her because she comes on trips with me. So she's, you know, she now goes with me. So now the traveling isn't that big a deal. And also I've had a studio at home since, well, I guess before we were in this house. So probably for 20 years now, you know, more and more of my work is being done here. So now I almost never leave the house. Um, but obviously, I was still going to studios a lot early on in my career. But whenever I could, I would work at home. And that's that's a huge thing, too. I mean, you just have to balance it. When I hear engineers say almost proudly that they missed the birth of their child because they were in the studio, I don't buy that. I mean, I love what I do. It is my life's work. It's my life's passion in terms of working on music, but man, you can't, there's no record that's more important than a birth. That's just, it's just not. And obviously, look, there can be situations in which, you know, you're not going to fly 4,000 miles at the drop of a hat in the middle of a project and whatever, but you gotta, I think as long as you've got your priorities straight, it doesn't mean you're always going to be able to um, adhere to those priorities 
But as long as you actually have them in that order, everything is cool. It's when you don't. It's when you're staying at the studio to kind of avoid going home because it's fun to hang out and do a bunch of blow with the band. <laughs> and, you know, you got to kind of go home. At that point, you need to, to sort of restructure stuff. Having your, your son early on, do you feel that that caused you to grow up a little quicker and prioritize maybe a little differently than someone who didn't have a kid at that moment? Um, yeah, to a point. I mean, but I think it's probably just in my nature that I'm, I'm fiscally terrified. You know, I'm always terrified that we're going to be living in a cardboard box because um, I'm not going to work enough. So when, you know, the more people you have depending on your income, the more that sort of steers your decisions. But I would be terrified about money anyway. <laughs> it's, it's just it's just the way i am like when people see pictures of the studio and they see all the gear like what, you're terrified of money no way look at all the money you spend but if you look very little of what's in here isn't going up in value like i don't just buy a bunch of new gear i only buy old gear because it's going to hold its value so when my career ends next week <laughs> i can sell it and live off it for a while like it, this is always in the back of my mind that's your retirement plan. We've talked about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it may end up having to be an earlier than retirement plan, but, you know, whatever it is, it is. Um, and obviously, I love my consoles. It's not that, you know, I only bought them as an investment, and I love that over the years I've used them a lot. But um, it truly was an investment because I didn't trust myself to buy stock. Like, I almost borrowed money to buy out. Like, I listened to Vance's. Oh, my God. I came so close to calling my parents to borrow money to buy it when they were at 13. Oh. I remember the day. I remember where I was. I remember. And this was when uh, they were still allowing clones. And it was right before they brought Steve Jobs back. And I thought, man, they're not going to go under. And I just, I couldn't, I was so terrified that I couldn't bring myself to do it. I so, know when he, when Vance told me that, that he bought it at a hundred. Yeah. I was just like, oh. Yeah, and I, I was going to buy it at a tenth of that, you know. But, you know, whatever. These things happen. And it's, I would much rather have that story than the story about how I bought something at a thousand and then it went down to 13. So, you know, I'll live with it. <laughs> um, I do want to talk about gear in a little bit because you're, you're tempting me with talking about your consoles, but I'm going to hold off for a second. Um, right. I want to talk a little bit about survival. When you're at the level that you're at, I think that there, there's probably a perception of other engineers out there that, oh, Andrew Sheps, I mean, he, A, he must be rolling in it, B, he's <laughs> going to have a never-ending career. and Yeah, that's true at all. I was introduced to somebody once, and, and the guy who was introducing me mentioned a couple of the records I worked on, and as he shook my hand, this guy said, oh, you must be a very wealthy man. Like, you have no fucking idea. Give us the reality on the ground. I mean, you don't have to talk specific numbers, but give, give, us, give us the, the true the true reality. I mean, well, I mean, look, the true reality is in, except in a few specific cases, there are very few records that have big budgets anymore. And certainly, you know, in the genres that I choose to work in the most, um, I mean, if I really wanted to chase doing more pop records, I could probably find some bigger budgets, but then I'm also up against people, you know, who've been doing that for years. And like, I don't know that I can compete with Manny and Tony and, Serbin and those guys in that world. And I don't know that I really want to because it's not what I do. So budgets are tiny. You know, they're a tenth of what they were five years ago. Um, and 
that's okay. You know, I can still pay my mortgage, but I do tons and tons of projects for very, very little money. And then every once in a while, there's something that's got a good, uh, a good amount of cash, and that's great. There are also very, very few projects that I have points on, and of those, almost none of them have ever been worth a penny. So, you know, there is this myth. It's the same myth like, you know, bands make all their money touring. Well, that's not true either. And we could go through how they actually lose a bunch of money touring. But, you know, we only have so much time. But it's that sort of perception that, oh, man, that guy's got points. He's fabulously wealthy. Obviously, it's like playing the lottery. So, like, if I had points on Adele, I would be rich. I would have gotten hundreds of thousands of dollars off of that. But I don't, so I didn't. And, you know, um, I basically work for my fees. And I'm sure everybody you've talked to said the same thing. The fees are absolutely not what they used to be. So that, that's the reality. I'm always looking for work and um, always negotiating the best deal I can. And I'm always cutting people deals. You listen to Vance's podcast. So our discussion about management, is it, I don't know if you remember that portion of, of my talk with him, but... As far as how you got management and Vance's description of it, is it pretty much the same thing? I think one thing is is that engineers and producers look at management the way bands look at getting signed. You know, they think it's this holy grail and they're, you know, something will be solved about their career. I mean, look, this typical thing that a manager takes is 15%. So you're... Uh, reasoning going into it needs to be that you feel that management will generate at least that much more work so that after commission, you still make the same amount of money. You'd love it if it was even more money than that. I mean, the idea is that they manage your career, right? So they help you make decisions. And as Vance pointed out, and it's one of the most important things, they have the conversations that you really shouldn't be having with the creative people. Let the money people talk to money people. And then that, that way, even though you're the one telling them what to say and what you will accept and what you won't accept, you're not the one saying it to their face right before you try and track a vocal. Yeah. Right. So that's a huge part of it. Obviously, me not having to collect my own money anymore, that's massive. But you could do that with a business manager instead if you wanted to for 5% or whatever they charge. Um, for me, I love my manager. I think Frank is an awesome guy, Frank McDonough. Um, he's got a great... A roster. The re way I got hooked up with him was through um, another really good friend of mine, Joe Breezy, who he's managed for longer than he's managed me. Um, and to be honest, the first time I talked to Frank, he said, I don't think, you know, you're ready. And I'm like, okay, cool. And the next time I talked to Frank, it was right in the middle of when we were making Stadium Arcadium with the Chili Peppers. And I was about to start working on a Lincoln Park record. And he said, yeah, man, let's do this. But you've already got those gigs lined up, so why don't we start it up after Lincoln Park? And immediately I knew that this guy is not in it just for the money. Because, I mean, if he were, he's in the wrong business, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, but there are a lot of them who are just super greedy. There are a lot of people who hate it when the producers on their roster hire an engineer who isn't on their roster because that's part of the budget they're no longer getting 15% on. And that's ridiculous. You need to make the best record you can make so you need the right people for it. Period. We're making art. We're not like, oh, you know, you're going to get some quotes on putting up a shed in my garden. <laughs> um, and Frank is not like that at all. So I... For me, his style of management is something that fits in with my personality. I feel as some people want, 
their manager to be a total dick so they don't have to be. To me, my manager is me. He's representing me. He's my avatar in these meetings. So, um, so that's a big part of it. Now, there has definitely been work that has come through Frank, but it's because he's got a roster and people will call him up and say, hey, man, I got this project. Who do you think would be good for it? And that's how that happens. It's not that he's out pounding the pavement getting me work. It's just that he has relationships with people who have work. Right. And so that's how that happens. And look, there are times where I'm super frustrated. And, you know, like last year, I had a three-month period where I did not work, basically. I don't think I had a single paying gig for eight weeks. And within the three months, I worked on maybe two things that paid money. So it can get really bad and you'll start to blame management. But then, you know, you talk to everybody else and they're slow too. And then something picks up and, you know, it goes in waves. And um, it's definitely not the the silver bullet that's going to cure all your ills. But when you're at a point where you're spending more time chasing up money and doing deals than working on music, then you're probably ready to have a manager, I would say. In terms of demystifying would you say to bands that may be listening to this you're available yeah of course you're approachable absolutely and look you almost don't need to even say that because i've stopped looking at facebook messages like the re i saw yours purely by accident because i get about 30 a day oh. from bands oh. and like i don't even want to open it because i feel bad if it says seen at whatever time and i don't respond but i can't i can't physically listen to every single person who sends me stuff. So one thing that's good about that is if you send it to my manager, he actually will compile things and send them to me, and I have a much better chance of seeing it. Um, but yes, I'm absolutely available. I'm always looking for great stuff to do. And I'm not, you know, it's not 10 grand a mix, believe me. I don't know who the hell gets 10 grand a mix, but someone does, I'm sure. Um, you know, I'm not you know, I don't want to say I'm cheap, but I'm very flexible. I'm mixing records right now for very little money, but because I have either have a relationship with the people or I love the music or, you know, there are a million reasons why I would do a project. And it's certainly not about the money most of the time. That's good to hear. And I think a lot of bands uh, listening to this would love to have you work on their stuff. Yeah. And at the same time, please don't be offended if I don't get back to you. Yeah. (laughs) I just, I can't keep up with it now. I really, and they can go to uh, McDonoughManagement.com. Yeah, I think it's McDman, M-C-D-M-A-N.com, and there's a contact link there. And you can find me. I would say, and I almost feel like I need to post on Facebook to say this so people know not to get upset if I don't get back to them, but Facebook messages is not the way to get a hold of me. Yeah, I think in the past I've 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 emailed with you and and – yeah, it seems as though Facebook messaging is getting pretty ubiquitous, but I've found when I started my label, which I'm sure we're going to talk about at some point um, years ago, I started accepting every single friend request. So I'm at like 4,800 friends and I know maybe 12 of them, <laughs> but I get messages constantly. So I just have decided that that's not a place I'm going to actually look for information. So, Well, let's talk about the label Tonequake. Tonequake. I was going to ask you about diversifying uh, as a survival strategy. And I don't know if having a label counts. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the joke is if you know how to make 10 million in the music industry, right? Start with 20. <laughs> so it's, yeah, as far as 
Diversifying to survive, I would say that starting a label is a really bad idea. As far as diversifying to understand what is actually going on in the world, I think it's pretty smart. Um, there's so much about getting a record out into the world and getting it noticed. And, you know, the one of the reasons I stop reading the Facebook messages is I get a million of them that say, hey, I'm really talented and I just need to get my stuff mixed by you and then it's all going to explode. And like, man, that's not the case. Like one of the reasons I started my label is because of so many amazing records I made for major labels that they screwed up the release or that they didn't screw up the release, but they just didn't catch on for whatever reason. And that side of the music industry is so brutally hard and unfathomable and impossible to control and expensive that I think it's good to dabble in it for a minute and get an appreciation for the people who are actually really good at it. That's a big deal. And just to the topic of diversification first, before we go you know, into anything else you want to talk about with the label, I think it's really important. And I think you know, I've always been diverse in terms of I engineered and did Pro Tools editing and did keyboard programming and whatever. And now at this point... I have my label, which loses money, but, you know, I suppose has the potential to make money. But I did the plug-in with Waves, which I'm actually really proud of and I think is awesome. And it doesn't generate any money for me, but I do things like this. I do podcasts. I do interviews. I do articles. Um, and I think that is, you know, I don't know if any of that is ever going to turn into any money, but I feel like... At this point, after this long, I have some stuff that's important to me to say. And if I'm given a platform to say it, I would be an idiot not to take advantage of it. When I talk about diversification, I mean, for me, uh, at my level, diversification means, in addition to this podcast, I actually edit a human resources podcast for a guy in Connecticut uh, as side money mm -hmm. uh, two to three times a month. And it's it's a little chunk of money and it definitely pays some bills. So yeah. do you ever have you ever gone down that not necessarily podcasting, but do you have you ever done other stuff not yeah, related early to on, I I almost took a full time job cutting sound effects. Um, but I did it freelance for a while. You know, I would show up and do ads and I remember conference calls about the sizzle sound when we were doing an ad for the a uh, Play-Doh McDonald's set that was like a drive-thru and you could press a hamburger out of like brown Play-Doh. And we had a conference call about which sound effect we were going to use for the sizzle when you press down the Play-Doh. So yeah, I've done all kinds of stuff. Okay. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it's great because first of all, like you say, it's a chunk of change. It's also, you learn about stuff. Um, Audio, I mean, records is a tiny, tiny, tiny part of the audio world in terms of work. Like, if you can get yourself a union gig taking care of audio at NFL Network and you happen to like football, that might be a much more fulfilling way to earn a living doing some audio. Um, there's so many things, like gaming audio, either from sound design or from music, there's more money there than in films now. So that sort of diversification, I think, is really important. And it's also important because you just learn stuff. You learn how to do things. You learn to appreciate it. Like cutting dialogue is difficult. Cutting sound effects is as creative as writing songs. It's, it's a real great insight into other people's creative process, which is always worthwhile. And that, you know, in and out of audio, I think that's important 
for anything, like study painting and read books. And, you know, if you're in a creative industry, try and see how other people are creative is, is pretty important. But just from a work standpoint, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if something comes up at this point, I'd like to pretty much just do records. But that doesn't mean that something wouldn't come up that seems interesting or I just need the work and I will do it. Yeah. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. Well, let's let's delve into the label. Um, why did you want to do a label? Purely because I thought I could do it better. You know, I was like being the assistant and thinking you can engineer better. I was making records and thought that I'd seen the labels drop the ball in how they put it out or when they put it out or decisions they made um, or not putting it out at all. And I just felt like, okay, I'm going to have a label one day. So, you know, you say this over beers for 10 years or 15 years. And then an opportunity came up with a particular record for this band, Low Roar. Um, and we just decided to do it ourselves. And that started the label. And I didn't want to put it, I didn't want the band to put it out. I wanted it to be a label. And I had some specific ideas about sort of the aesthetic of the label, not musically, but just how it would be. And I got talked out of a few of them and I'm sort of glad I did. I wanted it to be just sort of like a lemonade stand at the end of the driveway. Like, Hey, I got some music here, but I quickly found out that basically you would sell it to your mom and nobody else. If you do that, you do have to do some promotion and you have to do some radio work, depending on the type of music. So I got sucked into the same sort of world that all the other labels are in, but trying to be very hands on and to question everything along the way. Like, well, why does it have to come out on a Tuesday? That's been like the thing that (laughs) bugs me the most since I started the label. Just just to be a pain in the ass, I didn't want it to come out on a Tuesday. And every record I put out has come out on a Tuesday. And it still bothers me because there's no reason for it. But that's what happens because that's the cycle. That's when people are used to it. So um, that's why I decided to start it. And, you know, I've picked up a few other acts along the way, which has been great. And I've got some great music on there, I think. Um, but really the low roar project is the only one that's really kind of doing anything at the moment. In that case, does the band, do they actually pay you for the, for the recording element of it or are you doing it? The way the label works is I license finished records from the band. Now it turns out that I've worked on most of the records that I've put out, not all, but I've worked on most of them. And like in the case of the low roar records, the first record basically, um, Ryan, the main songwriter, singer, um, and I made the record with a couple other people playing stuff. This last record, they're very much a band. It's a three-piece band. Um, and I still co-produced and added a bunch of instruments and mixed it. So I'm very creatively involved in those records. Some of the other stuff I put out, I've just mixed. But my deal for making the record is completely outside of the label. The label does not sign artists. It licenses masters. Just because it's a cleaner way to deal with it. And it's a straight up 50-50 split once we recoup. And then it's uh, 70-30 in my favor until we recoup. But also, I don't recoup the way record labels recoup. 
are you are you aware of the crazy economics of how you recoup if you're a band signed to a major label? You know, it's been some years. I was on Warner Brothers, and I was on a label called Imago yeah. uh, many years ago. So I can't I remember. There's a lot of bands who've been signed forever who don't know how much they're actually getting kind of screwed. Basically, like you sign as an artist to a major label, you get about 12 points, right? That's sort of a standard deal on the record sales. Okay. And then you've got X amount of money that you have spent to make the record, and that's a recoupable expense. You don't make that amount of money selling records to recoup the expense, your 12% of the record sales has to be that amount before it's recouped. Which means they're selling eight times the record budget. So if you spent $100,000 making a record, which these days is unheard of, but let's say you spent $100,000, you would have to sell almost $800,000 worth of records before your 12% had recouped that $100,000. Gosh, that's insane. Like, that, I, that's just that's jiggery pokery on a spreadsheet to me. That's <laughs> crazy. So when I say it's a 70 30 split, it's basically I get 70 cents of every dollar that comes in until I break even. And then we just split everything 50 50. So but that's of 100 percent of the money. There's nothing coming off the top for anything. So that that's generally the deal I cut with the with the in fact I think that is the deal on every single record I've put out. And then in terms of what I spend, it just depends on the release. Like the low row records, we've spent tons of money. We've done PR campaigns in Europe, in South America, in the States. I've done radio in the States. I've paid for tour support for them in the States and in Europe. Um, I spend a ton of money on other releases. Uh, oh, and I, I've also pressed vinyl and CDs on both Low Roar records. Um, we're even selling the high-res version of the new Low Roar record. On other ones, I've only pressed CDs and done radio or done a little bit of promo. And then there are a couple that are only out digitally. And if the artist wanted to do some promo, that's on them. So, you know, every release is different in terms of the scope. Since the label is licensing the record, your duties as producer, engineer, the band is or is not paying for that? That deal is completely outside of the label deal. Okay. If I'm going to get paid to do it, they just pay me to do it. And then once the record's done, like um, one example of that on my label is uh, 2200, this great rock band from Australia. They hired me to mix the record. I mixed the record. I got paid to mix the record. That was it. Um, then they came back a few months later and said, hey, man, we've been thinking about it and we want you to put it out. At which point we decided who was going to pay to press the CDs and that was the money that needed to be recouped. But the fact that they hired me to mix their record has nothing to do with the money that the label makes. It's purely based on sales of the record to recoup the costs of selling the record. That's it. That keeps it clean. Keeps it super clean. So whatever the deal is for making the record has nothing to do with the label. So in the case of some of them, you know, there's no money at all and I love it and I'm very involved. And in that case, that's a deal I would work out whether I had a label or not, where maybe I get a piece of the songs because that's the only way they can pay me. Or they'll owe me money if they get this or that or the other thing. And, you know, you just be as creative and flexible as you can be. Um, so that if it does really well, you'll get paid, but they're not trying to come up with money for something before they've actually made it. Do you uh, do you end up spending a lot of money on lawyers? No, very little, actually. I spent money when I started the label to get a one-page contract drawn up, and uh, that's what I use with every single band. Excellent. I just feel like like the we're not talking about a lot of money here, 
And as soon as if one of these explodes and we're talking about a lot of money, they're going to get upstream to some major label who can actually service them well. I don't have a staff of people. I would have to hire outside everything to service something if it explodes. So it's going to be out of my hands long before we're talking about anything that is difficult to take care of. And I just want it to be completely upfront. I mean, I can't imagine how many pages it takes in a contract to explain to somebody that only 12% of the income from selling the record goes against the debt that they've incurred by letting the uh, letting the label pay to make the record. Like, there's no way they spell that out in one sentence because the bands would call bullshit on it immediately. <laughs> You know, I'd say, well, in that case, give me 50 points. Like, I understand you have overhead because you have offices and A&R admin, and you've got overhead that isn't directly tied to my record, and it's got to get paid for, but not 82% or 88%, sorry. So, you know, the contracts are very, very simple, and I haven't needed – like, the, the time I need to actually pay lawyers is that most of my artists are not in the U.S., and when they come to the U.S., they need visas. That costs me more money – in legal fees than everything else I've done combined. Oh my gosh. And what a hassle. Yeah. Because if you it <laughs> any quicker than six months away, you have to pay the expedite fee, which is like 10 times the regular fee. It's insane. Wow. Uh, just hearing you say it makes me want to stay away from it. Yeah, you should. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd rather just stay making records. Yeah. Well, all right. Let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about gear. I think the the number one thing that has really been on my mind personally, um, and something that gave me fantastic vindication and uh, made me feel good about my decisions was when I ran into you in Tucson this last time around, and you said you're mixing in the box, and yep. I thought, all right, Andrew's doing it. I sure as hell am going to be doing it or continue to do it, and. Uh, it's interesting because I I've gone through ver- various you know incarnations of of high end Pro Tools systems and spent thousands of dollars as I'm sure you have and many others have. Yeah. And it used to be kind of a I don't know. It was my perception that it was a taboo thing that oh you're mixing in the box. Well, that's not very pro. That doesn't sound good at all. And then obviously we're at the point we're at now with Pro Tools 10 and 11 and 32-bit, blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to even go into that. But to hear somebody like you, who I personally admire your work, um, when you say it, it's it really makes me feel better that I'm doing it. Not that I'm not, you know, I would never compare my my work to your work because, you know, we're just at different s- skill levels, I think. No, 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 no. But I, back to the point, the point is you're mixing in the box. Uh, people know that you have this studio full of gear yeah. and they know that you have a couple Neve boards. Yeah. So why did you do this? Well, see, Vance would have you believe it's because I have a particular client. <laughs> oh, that's right. He did say that. We he did say that. that. But, but the, the reality is I haven't actually worked for him in over a year. So this is, you know, that's sort of old news. But, okay, obviously there are the workflow differences. When you mix on a console, the mix is on the console. And if I count them up right now, I've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 18 knobs in a fader plus about eight switches on every single module of the console. And I've got a 64 input console. So you can do the math. That's how many settings need to be written down to document a mix. 
And a lot of the knobs on the Neve are not stepped. So you're sort of drawing a picture of where that line is pointing. There are a lot of arguments about, whoa, just take a picture. Well, the, the knobs are more than an inch tall, so the parallax makes it so that you have no idea of what you're looking at unless you're directly over the knob. So anyway, documenting a mix is very difficult, which means you can't work on a mix, then take it off the console, and then put it back on the console and expect it to sound the same, because it won't. It absolutely won't. And I've never had it sound better. It's always worse every single time. <laughs> so that workflow means that you then have to change how you work with clients. You have to say, I'm mixing one song at a time. You have to get back to me. It sits on the console till it's done. So then you start to be very, very aware of the amount of time it's going to take you to do a mix. Not the time it's going to take me personally to do the mix, but the time that mix will be on the console. And if you're working with someone in a different time zone, days get lost. Um, just waiting for mix notes. So that obviously can be very frustrating. And back when there was more money on a lot of projects, I would split my fee between studio time and a mix fee. And it, they would just pay for the number of days that it took. So then I'm okay with it. You know, I'm making less money the longer it takes, but I'm still making a bit more money than I would have in that period of time, right? Because they're paying by the day. People can't afford to do that anymore. The other thing is, People don't understand the concept of once I take that mix off the console, it's done. And like, no, they still will call you two and a half weeks later and say, yeah, so uh, we're going to need the hi-hat down a little bit and I need a version like this. And, you know, that's just the reality of the way people think about making records. It's been 25 years since nobody thought about making records that way. And over the last 25 years, just more and more and more and more flexibility and recallability are the norm. So you can't get people to do that. So that was my impetus to see about going back to mixing in the box. Because obviously I started mixing in the box. I wasn't born with an Eve console. You know, I've had these for the last seven years or something like that. Um, and I learned on a console, so that made sense to me. But then when I could only afford Pro Tools, there you go. Once they had hardware inserts, I figured out how to manually delay compensate, and I started using that a little bit. And then once delay compensation came back in and was working, that was a huge deal. Um, and at that time, let's say, I don't know, 10 years ago, mixing in the box absolutely worked, but it didn't sound great. It really didn't. It sounded good, but it wasn't amazing. Mixing in the box now, I am convinced from having done shootouts with myself that it actually sounds better in a lot of cases than mixing on the console. Now, another thing, I'm jumping all over the place here, but it's such a massive topic that it's hard to keep one train of thought going. You go, man. Um, so I'm going to pull onto the siding that talks more about like workflow and how you could maybe work the way I used to work on the console, but still accommodate people who want to do recalls. And I think Vance does that by printing stems of everything. And then he can tweak his mix from the stems, but I don't work the same way Vance does. I've got lots and lots of shared parallel compression, which means I've got multiple instruments going into the same compressor. They don't all have external key inputs, so I could print what's going to them and then use that as a key input. And so I, it's impossible for me to print stems that add up to the mix. It, it cannot be done. So I would have to print stems very early on in the mix and then just mix in the box anyway. So what's the point of that? I would much rather be completely flexible. Then the other thing, 
So I think there are two reasons why mixing in the box actually sounds better to me now. One is stuff just sounds better. I mean, the Pro Tools mixer going to floating point really threw me for a while. I had to get used to it, but now I love it. The headroom is great. You can change things much more easily sort of down the chain uh, with master faders and gain structure um, without having to sort of undo things you've done because it's floating point, it retains all the overs that were there in the mixer, and you can pull it down anyway. It's a lot of technical bullshit. Who cares? But that makes it easier. It also sounds better. And the plugins sound way better than they used to. One of the reasons I'm liking the sound of what I'm doing in the box better in a lot of ways is also to mix on a console. Let's say I'm splitting out across 40 channels on my desk, no matter how many tracks it is. You know, I'm coming out 40 outputs. That's 40 D to A's. The D to A, if you know anything about building digital things, the D to A is by far the weakest link in any digital chain. It's the most susceptible to clock. And then you've got the analog electronics on the backside of it. So if things are loud, you're going to start crunching in the analog domain because it maybe can't handle the level or the transients. And you're also going through it. So you have to like the sound of it. And then you have to go back into Pro Tools. So you're going back through an A to D, which is not as problematic, but it is still a conversion. If I'm mixing 100% in the box, the first time, assuming the mastering is done digitally, the first time since the microphone and the A to D on the way in that the thing is decoded is when you listen to the record. That's pretty cool. And that gets rid of all of the possible weak points or little jittery crap that can happen going through D to A's during a mix process. Not to mention the fact that um, I don't respect gain structure a whole lot. So I'm slamming analog gear a lot louder than it's meant to. And that makes things collapse in a good way. I mean, I love the way that sounds. And for all the years I mixed on the console, that was what was great about it to me. But that's also why I was always having trouble with stereo image, keeping it wide, because you start getting crosstalk in places that normally you wouldn't. And um, yeah, I'm just convinced that those are some of the reasons why I like it better. But I have literally done shootouts with myself mixing the same exact song on a console and then in the box, one right after another from scratch. And I've done it twice with two different things in two different studios, both times the in-the-box mix one, and not in subtle ways. It destroyed it. Then from there, I can start to enjoy all of the workflow awesomeness that there is with working in the box because I don't have to wait for approval. I send a mix and then I immediately start working on something else. I'm never only working on one thing at a time. As soon as I find myself losing focus, when I was mixing on the console, what do you do? You play solitaire, you leave the room, you go have lunch, and then you come back, and that time has passed. Now, I open up another song. I will be mixing eight or ten songs at a time, and I cycle through them. And as soon as I don't know what I want to do next on a mix, open up something else. Which also means if I'm mixing a record that's all tracked similarly, I can figure something out on song number six on the third day of mixing all eight that I can then apply to all eight and see if it actually makes all eight of them better. Instead of discovering that on song six and trying to decide, man, is it worth recalling the first five, which is something that used to happen a lot. You know, you really kind of are struggling with something with, let's say, the drums, and they've all tracked at the same place. And then you figure it out. And now, like, man, do I go make the first five songs better 
or not, because then that's on you. Now I can absolutely go do it, and it won't necessarily waste a whole lot of time to try it because I'm just importing. Plus, there's all the stuff about having a template, which is not that big a deal because I used to leave tons of gear patched up ready to use. So I always sort of had a template, um, but it's more flexible and it's more gear. You know, I don't have to run out of buses. I have as many buses as I want and I can just import things quickly. So all the really obvious stuff that everybody loves about mixing in the box, I'm now getting that benefit, but I wouldn't do it if I didn't think it sounded better. And it... For me right now, the way I'm mixing, it sounds better. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It just, it, it, it brings me satisfaction to hear you say that. And to, you know, to back it up, it's not just me. Like, I've had many more times when mastering is a flat transfer uh, with zero changes and from people who notoriously like to tinker. Um, and they say, look, I don't know what to do with this. This sounds awesome. So I'm like, the frequencies are right. The imaging's right. They're fine. Like, all of that is working out at the moment. And who knows, man, in six months, I might hate the way it all sounds and do something different. But at the moment, that's what's going on. You're saying in the box. So I'm assuming you're a hundred percent in the box. hundred percent. My mix rig fits in a backpack. Well, you want to just give me a brief rundown of that? What are you using? It's a MacBook Pro. Um, when I'm home, I've got a Thunderbolt chassis with two HDX cards in it. Um, which is great for track count. I don't necessarily need them. I mean, I originally had the two cards because I was driving ADIO, uh, which I don't need to do. I've only got one IO on at the moment. And then when I'm traveling, I just don't bring the HDX cards. A lot of studios will have Thunderbolt chassis now, so I can just plug in and use their cards. Or if uh, I don't have that, then I just have the computer. And then I also have an Octo card, a UAD Octo card, and an Apollo Twin which when I'm on the road, the Apollo Twin is also my uh, little control room headphone. Hmm. And that's it. Uh, I've got a, a Frontier Designs um, Alpha Track, which is a little one-fader controller. Uh, yeah, that's it. Wow. <laughs> that's shocking. Are yeah. there any records recently done in the box by you that people would be... I Maybe they don't know you did them in the box. Maybe it's a surprise. Can you name any of those? Well... You know, I mean, and not to, this is going to make me sound like such a dick. Just look at the Grammy nominations and you'll see. <laughs> but there, there are three records that I did that are actually up for Grammys this year. And they were all in the box. Beyonce, uh, Ziggy Marley, and wow. Hosier. All 100% in the box. And the great thing is what that means is I could work on them anywhere. Because um, like we said at the very beginning, you know, I went to Europe last year for a little while. And I did some of that mixing on the road. And it doesn't matter where I am. People don't need to know where I am. I mix when I mix. And it's the exact same rig no matter where I am. And it's awesome. It is awesome. It's freed me up in ways that are, it's life-changing, you know. Does that mean you're mixing on headphones? Sometimes. Sometimes. And that scares me. But so far... I haven't had any complaints. I mean, one of the flat transfers was mastered at Abbey Road, and they love to do stuff, you know, and they've got amazing gear there, and the guys there are really great. And I sent the mix, and I'm like, man, I even warned the A&R guy, like, I don't know, they, these guys, like, let me know if there's any problem. And and the A&R guy said he showed up half an hour after the start of mastering because they wanted to, you know, give the guys some time with it. And he walked in and the guy said, well, you paid for another hour so we could run it through some stuff, but I've already done a flat transfer and it's done. There's nothing to change. 
So I've gotten lucky with it. Um, and, I, I, you know, 10 years ago, there's no way I could have done a mix in headphones and have it sound like anything. It's just experience and whatever. It's my 10,000 hours that have gotten me to that point. So I don't think there's any magic to it, but it is at that point. I'd obviously prefer to have speakers all the time, but that's not always possible. And I would rather keep being able to work and do whatever it is that I'm doing in my life that has me away from a pair of speakers than to say, okay, I can't go to my mother-in-law's place in England or I can't go to Iceland for Iceland Airwaves when Lorore is playing with a string quartet in front of 1,500 people. And, you know, I want to do those things, but I also, I can't not work because I'd be broke. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Okay, so my listeners would probably have my head on a platter if I didn't ask you what what headphones are you using man it's so funny because they're it's the Sony uh, I'm looking at them right now the MDR 7506 interesting the, the super bright headphones that everybody has in their studios because drummers can actually hear things over their drums um, yeah it's just the headphones that I happen to own because I bought five pairs for my studio and it's not like I know them that well. I mean, I guess I do because I've owned a pair of Sony headphones for years. But, um, you know, I don't, when I'm at home, I don't mix on them. It's not like I'm used to mixing on them. And I think, you know, the thing, that, the thing that's good about them is they're bright so you can hear what's going on. Whereas a lot of really good sounding headphones are actually kind of dull. And I think that everybody worries so much about the low end and I think there are way more mistakes made in the high frequencies where stuff is harsh and building up and stepping on each other and cymbals stepping on guitars, stepping on vocals. That's, if you don't clear out your upper mids and top end, that's going to be a much bigger problem than not clearing out your low end. You can always shave off the low end and it'll just be kind of a bummer, but you can do it without destroying things. You can't sort out bad mid-range and top end and it's really easy to hear on these headphones. And I think for the low end, you just get used to what the low end does to the frequencies above it. Like I can tell what the bass and the kick drum are doing by how the vocal sits in the track. You know, it's just everything affects everything else so much that you don't really have to listen specifically for low end, I don't think. When you are mixing on monitors, uh, what's what's your two favorite monitors of choice tannoy srm 10 b's and if i had to pick two i would pick one for the left and one for the right that's <laughs> seriously i don't use any other speakers okay so you're not an ns10 guy no i have a pair um because for years you know I, I had them and i keep it around so 
if somebody comes to attend a mix, um, there's a pair of speakers they know if they really want to check it. Okay. Um, but that doesn't come up a whole lot. Usually what will happen is the band will come in. They'll hear my speakers, which feel kind of bright. They'll want to listen on the NS10s. And either by the end of that first day or by the second day, we never go listen to them again. Interesting. Um, I want to shift gears for a little bit. I want to ask you about, um, and I've started doing this with uh, the last podcast with Steve Silverstein. I want to ask about mistakes. What are some critical mistakes that you've made that you've really learned from that you're open to talking about? Well, I didn't buy Apple at 13. God, man. That's that's number one. That's number one. Um, I'm almost as terrified of making a mistake as I am of losing money. So I tend to be ridiculously overprepared for things. And I feel like I'm good at reading situations and sort of knowing what's coming next. So I'm generally pretty prepared for stuff. I mean, very early on in, in my career, I did an internship at Music Annex up in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, and I was assisting on a session and this is before I learned the hierarchy of the studio. And I had an idea about a guitar part and I voiced it. And fortunately, the producer was awesome and kind of got me to shut up in a very subtle way during the session and said, hey, man, let me take you out to dinner tonight. And I got the talk about how it all works and how it should work, which as soon as he said shut up, I didn't even need the talk anymore. But he was very, very cool and explained it all. So, I mean, you know, that's a simple mistake in terms of you know, have I ever erased something or I'm sure I did back on tape. I'm sure I blew punches all the time. Um, yeah, I don't know though. I don't, I don't think I've made too many. I mean, in terms of the kind of mistake that I would classify as a mistake, it would be like some sort of decision in my career where I didn't take a gig. I should have, or, and I don't believe that that's really happened. And I'm not, you know, it's not this sort of zen, everything happens for a reason kind of thing. But I've been really lucky in my career. Um, and the only mistakes I've made are doing things because I thought somebody else wanted me to do it or it would be perceived to be a good thing and not really following my gut. Um, I had a, a manager before, Frank. And it seemed like a mistake going in, and it turned out it was a mistake. And so I just stopped working with them. And, you know, there are plenty of things like that where I'll have a gut feeling about something and either follow it or not, and then I find out whether I'm right. But um, I don't know. I, maybe I don't want to dwell on the mistakes because they just make me feel bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, I, I can't really – I mean, you give me an example. Maybe I'm thinking the wrong scope of mistakes. No, no, no. I, I mean, I, I, I trust that you, you would know, like there were, you know, I mean, I, I, I made a mistake early on. I remember I'm, I made this, this, uh, singer, this woman, I, I made her cry, you know, in a session and really learned a deep lesson there about keeping my cool. Yeah. I fortunately got to learn a lot of those lessons by watching other people fuck up. Oh, yeah. Well, you must have been in the room quietly. What not to do, even if it's just for you, you know, like, oh, that's that guy's style, but I don't want to be like that. But it's, um, yeah, it definitely learning just how to be a good person in the studio. Um, you know, that that's a huge part of working on records is the personality because people are trying to be creative, which means they're vulnerable and all the rest of it. And fortunately, I think I learned most of those lessons by watching other people screw up. 
Yeah, I, I feel like the older I get, the the more respectful and the more intuitive about reading the room I get. And I'm yeah. and yeah. I wish I could go back and correct a lot of a lot of errors I made in uh just human interaction. Yeah, and I think, you know, it is possible to to sort of swing that too far the other way. Like you're too worried about everybody liking you, and that's not necessarily what's gonna make the best record. But I don't I just can't be the kind of person who feels like you need to make somebody hate you. I mean, I actually heard somebody say if they were doing vocals and they didn't make them cry, they weren't doing their job. Like, well, that just seems crazy to me. That's not the way I want to do it. So I err on the side of wanting people to enjoy being in the room with me. And I would rather like one of the things in my career is I don't know that I've made um every band's most successful record but i've made a lot of records that the bands say are their favorite records and that's to me what the job is i don't know what a hit is you know i can't pretend to know so i would much rather that we get to the end of a project and love it for all the right reasons and then just see how it goes you know yeah also like to talk about obviously you've had many years of experience and 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 you've as we all do, hopefully, you know, you have grown. You mentioned your 10,000 hours, your, that, your Malcolm Gladwell reference there. I like that. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about advice. I kind of touched on this with John Cunaberti uh, several episodes ago. Two levels of advice, and I guess selfishly, I'm in one of those levels, I think. First of all, advice to the up-and-coming crowd who really wants to get into this world. And second, advice to guys like me who are already in it have experience, but really want to excel and take it up a notch. So if you could address maybe the the younger up and coming um, ladies and gentlemen that are coming, you know, from not only schools, but just entering into the workforce of the, the workforce, the, um, the world <laughs> of, I know I hesitate to say workforce, but those that are coming in and wanting to be in it. Yeah, it's tough, man. I mean, in terms of like specific, oh, you should do this or that, I don't know that I'll come up with anything. I think something that's really important, though, is to only get into it because it is your passion and you can't not do it. If you think like, oh, it'll be cool or yeah, it makes money or I've heard they do blow during the sessions and I like that, like just go do blow then. Don't do this because it's really, really difficult. There are a million people who want to do it. There are a bunch of people better than you who are going to be less successful than you. There are a bunch of people much worse than you who will be way more successful than you. And that's just the way it works. It's it's a very bizarre lottery-based system and there's no knowing anything. So you've got to sort of recognize that going in and embrace it and not fight it. Um, in terms of something a little bit more specific, I think that, and I don't spend too much time looking on message boards just because I'm a little bit OCD and I would have to read every message on the board and I can't keep up with them. So I just stop looking like with the Facebook messages. Right. Um, but I think there's a lot of, a lot of people who feel as though if they could just get this one more piece of gear or this one plug-in, then they'd be able to do better work. Then their mixes would finally sound like servants or, you know, whatever. 
And that is 100% bullshit. I was terrified of going in the box because I thought I'm not going to be able to make it sound good. And then I talked to Chad Blake about it. And I didn't even ask him about the mixing in the box part because all it took was making the realization Chad is mixing in the box and has been for years. And I still love the way he makes records sound. Like for me, I feel as though my mixes feel good. I'm not positive if they sound good or not, but I love the way his mixes sound, period. And there are people who argue that sounded better when he was on the console or, you know, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I still think they sound amazing. He's in the box. Therefore, I no longer have any excuse that I can make. And it isn't because I don't know what plugins he uses. I mean, he said something like when he does the mix with the masters, he would love for somebody to give him a song he's never heard before and say, you can only use this EQ plugin, this compression plugin, and this distortion plugin. You get three plugins. That's it. Go mix the song. He wants to have limitations on his tool set, and he wants the challenge of finding something new. I'm not quite like that. I mean, I love exploring and finding stuff, but once I find things that work, I love the fact that I've always got it in my template, and it's sort of like that's my security blanket. So I can hear a sound in my head, and I don't have to remember how to make it. I just like, oh, right, that's the thing that I called this. And there are quite a few chains in my template. I don't even remember what they are. And it doesn't matter to me. I don't care because they're this magic box that does the thing I want. So you have got to stop worrying about what gear you've got, what software you're using, where you're working, what speakers you've got. Just be in a room that doesn't sound terrible with either a pair of headphones or a pair of speakers that you know and learn how the stuff translates and use your ears. Nobody cares what you did to make it sound the way it sounds. All they care about and all they'll ever know about it is what comes out of the speakers. And if you're worried about doing something that maybe you think isn't the right way to do it, but it sounds right to you, then you're, you're thinking inside out. You have to do what sounds good to you, and that's it. And if you just do that, I think there are actually a lot of people who say they want to do this and it'll turn out they have absolutely no idea what they want it to sound like. At that point, maybe you're not doing the right thing. You have to have some vision of what you want to come out of the speakers. And not specifically sonically, but just like, oh, my God, I know how I want this song to feel when you listen to it. That's all you're trying to do. And it's so easy to lose sight of it, you know, um, yeah, whatever. I, I mean, I could go on and on and just keep saying the same thing over and over. But I think that that's really, really important. I, I'm excited because everything you just said, I 100% agree with. And even down to the point of talking about the desire to, oh, if I only get this extra piece of gear. People who listen to the podcast know I've said that a million times. It's it's the thing that I think uh, economically can over time with that philosophy can devastate an engineer because they yep. think, oh, if I get this, oh, and then if I get this, and they end up eating up any of the money that they've made because they just keep buying shit. And not to mention the fact all they're really doing is making an excuse for why they don't like their own work and they're not actually trying to get better. They just stop because they say, well, it's because I don't have this piece of gear. Well, at that point, you're not even doing your job anymore. 
Another thing you said, you said, you know, it doesn't matter what you use. It's, it's how it turns out. I always say, as long as the meal tastes good, do you give a shit if somebody cooked it on a gas stove or an electric stove and iron pots or tin pots? No, not at all. And as a mixer, you've got to realize that is the deal. You're only cooking the ingredients that they gave you. So you can certainly blame a terrible mix on a terrible song or something that's horribly recorded. But, I mean, I make something recently where I'm not in love with the way the recording sounds, but I still made it feel really good, and the band loves it, and I've accomplished my task. It would have been so easy to say, well, this will never sound good because of the way it was tracked, but that's that's just a cop-out. You know, then you need to just not take the gig. You can't take the gig and then have an excuse as to why you didn't do good work. Do these things that we've talked about for the uh, entry-level person uh, apply as well to the mid-level yeah, person? Yeah, I mean, I think it always applies. I think it's, you know, make sure that you've got something special about what you do. Um, like, for me, it was always that I could do multiple things. And um, I'm also fortunate that I grew up playing trumpet, of all things. But I can read a score. I can talk music to people in any genre. Also, I spent a lot of time doing programming, so I don't do it anymore. And I don't like I just bought live finally because I feel like I need to learn it because it's such a different paradigm for making music. But I understand how to program drums. I can get a synth sound. I love my modular synth. I understand synthesis. I know how the gear I'm using works. So, you know, be knowledgeable and study your craft. But if you can have some special things about what you do, then that's a reason for people to differentiate you from somebody else because there are a million people who are really good at what we do. Um, and like I said before, it's not even necessarily you being good at it that's going to get you a gig. It's luck of the draw. It's who you know. It's, you know, whatever it is. Um, and I don't know. I think my career has – I've obviously been incredibly fortunate and been in the right place at the right time a bunch of times. Um, but I've put myself – in lots of places at lots of times and some of them have worked out better than others so that's just the way that works and you just have to work hard and try and be good at it and I think that will eventually win out another thing is just like don't blame the gear for you know your lack of success or, or whatever it is I think also it's easy when you're you feel like you're really good and let's say you're in a secondary market so you don't have some opportunities for some of the bigger records and it seems like all the big bands from your area are working with other people. Well, don't always lust after a level of work you don't have. Find the best of the level of work you do have. Find bands that are in the same point in their career that you are in yours. And then you can get a great reciprocal relationship where if you do something cheap, you don't feel like you're being screwed because you know exactly what situation the band is in. You'll feel more ownership for it. Um, you know, there are a million ways to sort of keep yourself motivated. And I think that's really the key to it because there's no telling what is going to lead to what and what is the right thing and what's the wrong thing. But, um, you know, other than don't be a dick, it's hard to be specific about it. No, I think that don't be a dick is overall good advice in everything. Yes, that's going to be my new uh, my new Twitter hashtag with I actually use Twitter. Hash, hashtag don't be a dick. Yeah. This is... Uh... This is outside the scope, but you know Chad Blake? I do know Chad Blake. You got to ask Chad Blake if he'll be on the show sometime. <laughs> All right. You got to figure out your time, though. He lives in Wales. So. The, oh, man. I'm, I, I, would, 
I would move heaven and earth to 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 talk with him because he's. I think we both have. Uh, we belong to the uh, Chad Blake uh, Admiration Society or whatever, whatever you'd call it. Yeah, the, look, for anybody who's listened to this, if you have not heard the first Latin Playboys record, go buy it. Don't stream it. Go buy it and listen to it. It's money well spent. It is a masterpiece of lo-fi awesomeness that sounds huge. And that, as an introduction to Chad, if you don't know his work, is... I, it's one of my favorite records ever made in terms of record making. Uh, and uh, along those same lines, uh, a little bit further down the line in, in those production techniques and ideas, uh, Los Lobos's Colossal Head. Yeah, and Kiko. Oh, my gosh. Those are such great records. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll I'll email him and see. I'll ask him. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're a busy guy, and I, I just got to say, you're one of the nicest guys on this level that I've ever uh, had the honor of knowing and, and calling a friend, and I, I appreciate you being on here. Well, thanks, man. I really appreciate that. I mean, I really do try and live by the don't be a dick thing. <laughs> <laughs> I really try, and I fail. I fail, but I'm always aware of when I've failed, so yeah. But I really appreciate that. That's awesome. And I love that you're doing this. This is great. And it's such a great list of people you've had on it, too. It's not the, the usual, you know, the same guys who do all of the stuff. It's, a, it's some people I didn't wasn't really aware of. So it's awesome. The usual suspects. Yeah. Well, it's I'm just going with people I know and, and people I enjoy talking with and people who I have questions that it gives me an excuse to go, you know, let me call Andrew up and bug him and Look, and I think it's super important in the way the industry is now. You know, you're not going to go be an assistant and sort of have an apprenticeship anymore. You've got to learn on your own. And the way you do it is your podcast, Pensado's Place, Mixed with the Masters. It's it's a new way of learning it, and it's really, really important. Yeah, boy. I tell you, having uh, uh, Dave Pensado on would be – maybe that's what I should do. I should try to get in touch with him. Yeah, we'll get in touch with Herb. You know, Dave's got people. <laughs> Dave, I know you got to go through Dave's people, especially Herb. Well, I'd like to, I'd actually like to sit and talk with Herb and Dave and have them on the show and ask them a million questions. So. Yeah. I don't know if they've got time to be on other people's stuff, to be honest. I, I don't know how Dave sustains his ridiculously successful career while doing that show. It is incredible. And I know Herb does a ton of heavy lifting for it too. And it's, it is amazing what those guys pull off while still doing everything they always did. Yeah. A uh, very inspirational show, and I know a lot of people watch it, so uh, props to those guys. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to let you go. I uh, Once again, thank you so much, and um, safe travels wherever you're going. All right, awesome. Well, you know where I am. <laughs> yeah, I'll find you. Well, but I won't find you on Facebook. I, I'll, I'm, I'm not going to make that mistake. <laughs> exactly. All right, Andrew, you take care, and thanks again. Okay, Matt. Thanks, man. Bye. Wow. Andrew Sheps. Great to have him on. Hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. Fantastic dude. Great information. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for. 
giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right. Pretty affordable. Head on over to CaliAudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. I guess we'll see you in, uh, or we'll uh, we'll chat with you in two weeks. Hey, and instead of telling you to do the social media tour, I'm going to tell you to get your other engineering friends, take them out for coffee, and when they say, what's new with you, say, the Working Class Audio Podcast, that's what's new. Have them come join us over here, and we'll turn them on to what we got going on here. Take care, and see you in two weeks. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>